Let us pray together. As a deer longs for flowing streams, O God, so our souls long for you. And we pray this morning that you would meet us yet again as you have promised in our yearning. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We have a wonderful... Am I on? We have a wonderful uh, Exploring Faith class this spring with uh, around ten of us studying together. And in this class, we are tracing the arc of God's salvation story from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. It is the story we are learning of communion with God, given, lost, and then through Jesus, restored to us again. In our class, we are learning that many people often assume that the good book begins with the story of our original sin, but it most definitely does not. It actually begins with the story of our original goodness. In our class recently, we had the joy of opening our Bible to page 1, the very first page in Genesis chapter 1, and to read the amazing story of how God lavishly created a planet filled with orchids and roses, with pandas and giraffes, and some of us have been watching giraffes lately, a world filled with Orioles. Some of you aren't on YouTube. The birth of a giraffe was uh, filmed on uh, YouTube recently. A world filled with Orioles and flamingos. And then all of this wonderful creation is placed into the good care of Adam and Eve. On that very first page, we also learn one of the Bible's most, most crucial revelation. Verse 27, every woman and every man is made in the precious image of God. And in all of creation, we human beings are uniquely able to image God to each other. Think about that. We are able to uniquely image God to one another in our love, in our relationality, and in our creativity. In our class, we then noticed the two words that God uses to describe these newly created human beings. What is it? Very good. Very good. Friends, in the eyes of God, flawed and sinful is not who you and I really are. 
It is God's image in us and not our sin which is at the very core of our identity. And in these first two chapters of Genesis, we see this beautiful and profound communion between God and Adam and Eve as they walk together through the garden in the evening breeze. One commentator, Nadia Boltz-Weber, said that if God's first move is to give us our core identity, then the devil's first move is to throw that identity into question. In our Genesis 3 reading today, notice how sin, just like cancer, infects and distorts what is good. Adam and Eve, once happy to be free in God, now reach for the forbidden fruit of being free from God. They pursue and they reach for things apart, separate from their life in God. And with great devastation now, sin now shatters their communion with God in the garden. Adam and Eve are suddenly alienated from everything, from God, from each other, from who they really are themselves. They now cover themselves with fig leaves, hide from God behind trees. What a sight. No more walks together in the evening breeze. Shame and fear and misery and very soon violence all come parading now into the human story. This is not just the story, dear friends, of paradise lost, as John Milton once put it, but also our tragic story of communion lost with God as well. And so I hope it's clear that when we actually read Genesis 3 in the context of Genesis 1 and 2, we discover that sin is actually what makes us less human. Less human. Less than God created us first to be. Sin obscures the image of God in you and in me. Defaces and de-images who we were all meant to be. You know, as a pastor, I'm sometimes asked about the story of the garden. Hey, pastor, when and where did that story actually happen? For all of you who were at Krista Tippett's lecture last night, her interview... What would she say to that question? It's the wrong one. 
It's our 21st century question, but it's not the question of the Jewish people who first wrote this story. A better question, I believe, she would say is, is this story true? Yes, it is true. Because it tells us central things about God and our human condition. And dear friends, ever since the garden, the human heart has been filled with a deep, deep hunger and yearning for what we lost. We all try to fill it and just satisfy it with many things. We try to fill that hunger with workaholism, with sexual conquest, with alcohol, with pornography, with heroin, with 300 cable channels, with chasing after one peak experience after another. Dear friends, what is the way that you fill your hunger? But still, it always remains, doesn't it? I can't get no satisfaction, Mick Jagger lamented, though I try and I try and I try and I try. That's verbatim. (laughs) Everybody has a hungry heart. Bruce Springsteen. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You too. In the Broadway hit, Hamilton, Alexander sings, I have never been satisfied. But dear friends, what if this deep, deep hunger that we all experience is telling all of us something absolutely crucial? What if we actually paid more attention to it instead of always trying to numb it down push it away, satisfy it with false substitutes? What if this hunger is actually our homing device placed in us by God to draw us back into the loving communion for which we were always created? What if? G.K. Chesterton once said, as I've quoted before, that every person knocking on the door of a brothel is actually really looking for God. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Psalm 42, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you. You, O God. St. Augustine, you, O God, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless, restless, restless until they finally find their rest in thee.
out in the wilderness today with Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. We witness the beginning of a great restoration. Three times a Bible-quoting devil tries to tempt Jesus. Remember that the M.O. of evil is always to throw our core identity into question. Satan can never, never add anything to creation, but can only twist and distort what is actually good. And so just before our story at the baptism of Jesus, his core identity is revealed, remember? He is the beloved Son of God. And then, it's no coincidence, two of the three of the devil's questions to him call that identity into question. If you are the Son of God, they each begin. Just like us, Jesus is urged to doubt his core identity as God's beloved child. Ever doubt that? Just like us, he is urged to put his relationship to God to the test, with God to the test. Ever done that? And just like us, Jesus is tempted to shift his worship and his allegiance from God altogether. In the wilderness, you see, Jesus refuses to pursue or to reach for anything apart from his life with God. And Romans 5, elsewhere in Scripture, then tells us that while sin came parading into the human story through Adam, which Adam, Adam in Hebrew means the first human, a restored relationship with God now comes to us through the second Adam, Jesus. Jesus comes to restore our long-lost communion with God. And in restoring our communion with God, Jesus also restores our core identity as bearers of the precious image of God. His grace comes to make us radically ourselves in in God. So friends, in closing... What if one of the primary purposes of East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church is to be our school of desire? Our nursery, if you will, of desire. The community where we pay more attention to our deepest, deepest hungers 
instead of trying to hide them or numb them or satisfy them with false substitutes. And what if East Chestnut is the community where all of our hungers, some of which are deeply, deeply harmful to ourselves and to others, are slowly being sifted and transformed and redirected toward God? Where some of our, all of our hungers, some of which are harmful to us, are being sifted and transformed and redirected toward God. And dear friends, this is the community where Jesus invites us to experience at his table the communion with God and with each other for which we've been longing all along. Amen.